the only way it could have gotten more eighties is if the Terminator would have burst in trying to hunt down Sarah Connor. <laughs> third episode of Cinema Decon, deconstructing and overthinking the movies of our younger years. My name is Steve, and on this podcast, we will revisit the movies that we keep in the back part of our minds as flawless masterpieces, untouchable by any criticism, and hopefully they stay that way. Join us as we rewatch a randomly selected movie from our list of 300 plus from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. With me on this journey is my co-host, who still wears a single white crystal-covered glove everywhere he goes, Aaron. How are you tonight, Aaron? I'm doing fairly good tonight, Steve. It's been a pretty good week here in North Georgia. Just happy to get back to uh, doing what we do best, watching movies and completely tearing them apart. North Georgia, where the, the skies are clear and there's no gas anywhere to be found. Uh, other than the fact that we're in the middle of a gas shortage here in uh, the wonderful land of Georgia, half due to the uh, pipeline ransomware attack and the other half due to pretty much everybody going out and trying to buy up all the gas immediately once they heard about the pipeline ransomware attack. Did you get any? You fill up? Um, I already had a mostly full truck, but I uh, was going to go top off and uh, top off some of my home canisters uh, the other day. And the gas station right next to my house is already completely out. Unfortunately, they have not turned off their pricing sign. So nobody will know that they're out until they drive up to it. You can see they've got bags over every single one of the canisters and a sign on the door in really small print that says, we're sorry, we have no gas. It reminds me of the, uh, the gas shortage in the 80s. Yeah, I've only seen the pictures of those. I mean, was that in 80? Because Carter was president, so it had to be 80. Yeah. They featured it in the hockey movie Miracle, uh, which was about the 1980 Winter Olympics. So there I know it was go. at least going on during that time. That makes sense. We got lucky and filled up on a Sunday night and then... Monday, the line started. Anybody want to buy some of this premium on Letty? <laughs> so what we do here at Cinema Decon is a rewatch of an old movie with the hopes that they're still as good as we remember them from the first time we saw them. Then Steve and I meet up to talk about it, point out our highs and lows, give it a rank and place on our mega list of movies. So here we are now two episodes in, fully published all across the interwebs. The interest and reviews have been great. Uh, so a big thank you to all of you out there who have tuned in. We've also made some technological progress. We've got cinemadecon.com up and running, which has our list of movies on it, the rankings, and all the episodes we've completed so far. All two of them. Yes. And, and a trailer. All two and a half of them, for those that can't count. <laughs> yeah, I think our goal here is that if we are lucky enough with our schedules to get one to three movies a month in, that's, that's a good month. Say, depending on kids, work, life, hockey, apocalypses, pandemics, gas shortages, whatever happens to pop up that week. Yeah, human sacrifices, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Exactly. Today's movie is the 1998 romantic comedy The Wedding Singer, directed by Frank Caracci, starring Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore. So, Stevesy, what are your initial recollections of this movie? I have seen this movie so many times. I have nothing but fond memories of it. We still quote it to this day. Uh, yeah, and I've, I've seen it several times. It's been quite a while. There's only a few things I remember. The big, the big ones obviously being Billy Idol, 
on the plane <laughs> and uh, Julia Gulia. Julia Gulia. Uh, reminded me a lot of Marcy Darcy from uh, Married with Children. And then the the ever wonderful Christine Taylor, who I've had a crush on ever since Hey Dude. Oh, that goes way back. Oh, yes. Way back machine. This was a, a military watch for me. Saw it in the, in the barracks and it, it immediately became my, my favorite Adam Sandler movie. Just, it has always been uh, barely eclipsing Happy Gilmore. I love Happy Gilmore, but the wedding singer with the music involved, I, I love it. I, I, I like it when Adam Sandler sings. It just, it hits on all points for me. And I hope it is still as funny as the last time I saw it, which has been a while. Uh, maybe I caught bits and pieces if it was on TV, but I haven't sat and watched it in a long time. Uh, I remember the best friend who's always trying to to be cool, whether, whether he's wearing the the Michael Jackson outfit. Oh, God, yes. And then uh, John Lovitz as the competition singer, singing like a Shaka Khan song. I forgot he was in that. I totally forgot he was in that. Yeah, I, uh, off the top of my head, I can't think of anybody else. Steve Buscemi. He's in it at the beginning and at the end. I remember him mainly at the end where he's the he's now the wedding singer. Oh, right. Yeah, it is definitely the best time. Uh, I would actually do the exact opposite on yours. Uh, I would put, for me, Happy Gilmore slightly edged out this one. Uh, this would definitely be up there, but Happy Gilmore is probably, would be probably what I'd pick as my favorite uh, Adam Sandler movie. Uh, a lot of that having to do with me being a hockey player. Good point. And there's nothing better than seeing Bob Barker punch somebody out. <laughs> I just, I love the wedding singer. You know, it starts off with him spinning, you spin me around and, and just the, it's, it's really the music. Cause it, cause all throughout the movie, you've got just all the bunch of classic eighties hits, all the classic one hit wonders. Yeah. Soundtrack. This I'm sure is great. I just literally can't remember most of it. Like I said, I might've just been focusing on Christine Taylor the entire time. Well, Drew Barrymore was, Cute as a button in this. Ah, uh, Drew Barrymore. Well before Charlie's Angels or any other stuff she she did there, and, and but I mean she was just just a cute little side character, the love interest. Mm-hmm. Was Wedding Singer before or after Scream? Scream was, I believe, ninety six. Wedding Singer. Uh, wedding Singer's ninety eight. Yeah, Scream was ninety six. So, so th- so this was part of her resurgence after Scream. Yeah, and well after say Firestarter and EP. Well, yeah, she had a rough patch after yeah, after childhood stardom. Don't tell me I never studied. All right, so I'm looking forward to that, and uh, yeah. we will we will come back after we go watch the wedding singer. Hey, these sheets are soft. You use downy? No, all temperature. You can wash your clothes at any temperature, and the colors don't run together. Really? Yeah. Now leave me alone. You have to go back to work. You know there's going to be over a hundred drunk girls at this wedding tonight. I've got nothing to offer anybody. I haven't done jack shit since high school. Why would any girl ever marry me? Marry you? I'm just trying to get someone to play with your ding-dong. And we're back. So from here on out, we're going to try and do something new after we watch our movies. We're going to try and do a quick recap from memory what the actual plot was. So Aaron, give it a shot. Sum up the wedding singer for us. Former 80s hair band stock. I don't have an answer for that. Is there something else I can help with? (laughs) Hey Siri, review this movie for us. Which one? 
<laughs> it took everyone. But all right, so here we go. Former 80s hairband star turned nuptial entertainer falls for his coworker and future client, despite her current fiance's unfortunate last name. Good synopsis. Poor, poor Glenn Gulia. <laughs> it still reminds me of Marcy Darcy every time that came up. So a movie starts out, act one, with one of the most fun intros I've seen in a movie. I loved every moment of that intro. Adam Sandler on stage singing uh, You Spin Me Around. Uh, but you've got everything that's cliched about an 80s crazy wedding. You've got the, 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 obviously the 80s music, the horrible dancing, the ugly dresses, the underage kid drinking. Uh, it just it looks like a lot of fun. And that really set the tone for the entire movie. And it was just an overall great scene to start out with. I'll definitely say that the uh, ozone layer above this fictional Richfield city back in 1985 is definitely losing a lot of layers with all the hairspray that was in that first scene. Lots of hair. Oh, yes. Yeah, there was more 80s in that opening scene than, you know, it was just, you know, straight into your veins there. (laughs) I was going to say, there's more 80s in that scene than 80s that I experienced. And I have that question here. Did you ever go to a wedding in the 80s that was remotely like this? No. Now, granted, being that young, I only went to maybe two weddings in the 80s, even around the time frame that this movie was set, which was 1985. The, one, the only one I can think of offhand was around, was around that time frame, uh, maybe a little later, but it was actually uh, my dad and stepmom's wedding. And it was nowhere like this. Yeah, my wedding recollections of the 80s are, are about the same. I think I went to two, maybe three as a kid. Uh, I, I have a, a memory of my uncle's wedding where uh, I think it was my uncle's wedding. I had on this uh, white suit with it looked like cookies and cream ice cream. And that's one of my clear memories because everyone kept telling me that my suit looked like cookies and cream ice cream. P- Pixar didn't happen. Oh, there's pictures out there. There's definitely pictures out there. I don't know where they're at. I hope they never come to light. But you're talking Steve at around, say, five, six, or seven. I don't remember the exact year. Note to self, pose inquiry to Steven's father. We need new, cu- <laughs> we need new clips for the website, man. <laughs> I did notice this time around, though, that Sandler's two friends that are in almost all his movies, they are both in this movie. Like, think, think of the, the two metalheads from... Little Nicky. Oh God, it's been so long I couldn't tell you. So, so one of them is the limo driver, Sammy, and then yeah, but the other one is the long-haired guy at the original at the yes. opening wedding that gives yes. the underage kid liquor. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had never, I never noticed and that then, first time. And that was just that was a very bit part too because he never really showed up in the rest of the movie. Nope. He, he was friends with uh, the best man. Steve Buscemi. Yeah, he, he was mildly disgusted with Steve Buscemi while he was completely drunk up there, <laughs> becoming the best guitarist in the world. Self-taught. <laughs> Jinx. But yeah, that's, that's probably the best, best man speech, you know, in cinematic history. Mm-hmm. But it, it leads into where we first meet Robbie. You know, he, the music aside, he saves the wedding, shows him as the caring you know, real tuned into to couples in love and and who he is and in that his yeah he really cares a lot about that whole well the business but just also just weddings and love in general. 
Yeah. I mean, he's at the top of his game at this point. He works as obviously a great wedding singer. He adores weddings and love in general, and he's about to get married himself to the woman of his dreams. Yeah. Which leads into the, the nice little meet cute with him and Julia on the, the back dock where they're both talking about how much they love their fiancés and it's going to be all rainbows and unicorns for both of them. While the 14-year-old kid is throwing up a boot into the dumpster right beside him. The alcohol equals smelling bad equals no one likes you. <laughs> so then, of course, with the wonderful setup of how Robbie's life is going so great and that he's so in love and believes in love for everybody we all know it's going to fall apart almost immediately in which it does. And they hint at that a little bit when we also meet the sister, your girl, Christine Taylor. Ah, Christine. Hey dude. Dressed like a, uh, like a Virgin Madonna there. There were so many costumes that Christine was in at this moment. It just took me straight back to the eighties. It was amazing. As I say, between Madonna and then the workout clothes, Yep. It just screamed over the top. She also spent a good half hour showing the cook, Robert Smigel, her boobs at some point, apparently off camera. Yeah, must have been a deleted scene. I'll look for the director's cut. I want to know how that took 30 minutes because she said it was the, you know, <laughs> it was the not, her best, half not her best half hour. <laughs> but it's, it's in that scene though, where, where her, she, Julia tells her that her fiance has not set a date and she's worried he's not gonna. So that plants the seeds of, you know, trouble in paradise there. Yeah. That's also the scene where it pretty much sets up Christine's character as the obvious, everybody knows that she's a slut and she has no shame about it or very little. I wouldn't say no shame because it obviously wouldn't have been the worst 30 minutes of her life if she had no shame. That's true. I do have a, a newfound appreciation for her character though, because watching it this time around, I had never realized how much she pulls the strings this entire movie. She zeroes in real quick on obviously her sister's in a rough relationship. That's not good for her. When Bobby rebounds, which we'll get to that later on, uh, she sees the connection and she starts doing things on purpose in order to, Mm -hmm. to, you know, she's the puppet master. The whole, yeah, the whole getting a date with Robbie after watching them kiss uh, was by far, I'm sure she's definitely pulling the strings because she sees it. Mm-hmm. she doesn't want to see it she that later says you know uh, how could I have missed this but I think she saw it it just didn't click right at that point if Robbie had gone up with her we're, so we're not there yet in the in the plot but had uh, had Robbie gone in and had sex with her she still would have because like you said she established oh, yeah. uh, that's, that's what she likes to do but she was probably much more glad that it didn't happen because it proved her right in her Machiavellian strategy to get her sister with the right guy that that leads into uh the next day or when however many days but you've got now robbie's wedding with string quartet playing don't stop believing which is, which uh, is yes nice. i want i want a cut of that that was pretty nice this the soundtrack alone in this movie was excellent yes between the covers i mean maybe not so much with george only singing do you really want to hurt me seven times in a row but other than that uh, interestingly enough, they actually have the person playing George is credited as both Robert or Alexis Arquette. I'm not sure if this was like a time, for, like uh, if you were to go to IMDb now, uh, it's uh, she is listed as Alexis Arquette. Uh, if you look 
at the bio, he was originally listed as Robert Arquette. So I don't know how the timing fit. I think this was the beginning of her personal transition in, in reality. It, She's got a great voice. Uh, I just honestly can't stand that song. You better get in there. They're starting to turn on George. <laughs> <laughs> and also, yes, learn another song. You're obviously a good singer. There's plenty of Culture Club songs out there. She could have learned another one. I don't think Karma Chameleon would have set the room either. What about their third song? (laughs) Cricket. (laughs) Cricket. Oh, yes, their third song, the one that everybody likes. Sure. There were also a lot of of real-world, like, straight 80s references that I liked in here. Uh, not the typical stuff that you see in movies where they'll make up almost sounding ones because they don't want to throw out the real company names or things. There is one I have a problem with, and we'll get to it in a little bit, but it, oh, okay. it bugs me because it throws off the dating of the whole movie. Ah, interesting. It, it bugged me as soon as he said it, but we'll get to it. The uh, So next day, the next day, Robbie is deep depression starting, and Linda shows up. Ah, uh, Yes. Yeah, Linda, of course, the, being the ex-fiancee that completely ditched him in front of the entire wedding party. Yeah, Linda shows up, and Linda shows up. She expects everything to be all good. Uh, they have a very frank conversation, and she just lays it out. Robbie dodged a bullet on this one. That, that, that woman's a basket case. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, and obviously, fairly superficial, her reasoning behind... Instead of just, you know, rationally talking to him or talking to him about anything at all, uh, she literally just ditches out of the wedding because she came to the realization that she didn't want to marry a wedding singer. She wanted to marry the rock star that he used to be. And we get some hints as far as Bobby's internal thoughts from like his his sister, who lives with his sister and her husband, uh, where she says that Robbie's been wanting to get married since he was 10 when their parents died or something. I don't know the exact age, but... Yeah, his goal it hasn't necessarily been to fall in love. His goal has just been to get married. And I've known some people like that. So he wants to fall in. He wants to fall in love, but his need is to get married. He would have married anybody at that point. Which makes you wonder if that was one of the primary reasons he switched over to being a wedding singer after his supposed rock band meltdown. Which we didn't get much of a backstory on what happened to his band, uh, other than he used to be a lead singer in a band called Final Warning where he wore spandex and silk shirts. I actually do like Adam Sandler's singing voice. And when he does, uh, you know, do full songs. Oh, yes. Uh, he's got several songs on his albums that he's almost Springsteen, like, you know, the lonesome kicker and several others. I love those tunes. And then, yeah, his, his covers of original eighties classics sound mm-hmm. great. So then we uh, cut over to Drew Barrymore's house, her all pink slash purple house. Oh man, that was, that was bad. <laughs> Mm. I don't know who painted that interior. <laughs> that was bad. That was just, I mean, it was just missing literally all the rainbows and unicorns on the wallpaper. Yep. Uh, this is where we meet Glenn. We find out that Glenn is a dick. <laughs> literally immediately. He cares nothing about her. He's the stereotype as far as the superficial uh, Wall Street dude. Loves Miami Vice. Literally. <laughs> he dresses like Don Johnson straight down to the white suits and bright pink shirts. Whereas the counterit, Sammy dresses like Michael Jackson the entire time. So, you know, you get two different sides of the 80s in this movie. 
Sammy is my favorite character in the movie. Every weird outfit he wears, his need to be as trendy and with every fad yeah. of the 80s is great. You got to lose the glove, though. <laughs> <laughs> Which, in fairness, he did. Sammy has a good moment, kind of. Uh, he goes into to Robbie's basement to kind of get him out of his funk. Robbie's listening to The Cure, of all things. You know, and his depression is, is pretty much in full, full stream at this point where he tells him he's got to go back to work. There's going to be a hundred drunk ladies at this wedding, which mm-hmm. to the viewer, you know, is going to be a recipe for disaster. To which Robbie uh, replies that, you know, he's not in the mood. Uh, he, uh, what makes you think I'm going to fall in love with anybody kind of thing, which Sammy comes back with one of the better lines. in the show. It's like love hell. I'm just trying to get somebody to play with your ding dong. <laughs> There were a lot of good one. There were a lot of good one-liners that I've requoted in random conversation from this movie. Yeah, Glenn is is obviously a dick. Doesn't care too much about Julia, other than the fact that he knows that she's loyal and he knows that she's uh, not after him for his money. Because per his own words, uh, they've been together while he made his money, so she wasn't in his mind a gold digger. And he doesn't he doesn't abuse her, you know, outright. He doesn't. It's not one of those, you know, he's a dick, but he's not, he's not physically abusing her. He's not, you know, as we see, you know, emotionally abusing her. He's not necessarily being a bad guy until later on we find out about the infidelity. Yeah. You know, then, then that, that turns a page. Yeah. Up, up to that point uh, from the scene in the club, which I mean, just from the character portrayal, you could probably assume it at that Mm -hmm. point, which I'm pretty sure I did the first time I saw it. It was just obviously confirmed because Adam Sandler's or Robbie's character picked up on it mm-hmm. uh, just from the way he was staring at that waitress. But even up, up to that point, no, he's, he's not necessarily an evil person. He's just a douche and hats off to uh, uh, Matthew Glade for playing that douche so well. Yeah. Originally, I think it was supposed to be the guy that plays shooter McGavin who, who would have done well. Oh, yes. Uh, he would have probably been a little old for the role, though, wouldn't he? Maybe. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's, math is hard. I don't, want to do, I don't want to do math right now. Well, we got a scene with uh, Robbie coming home, and his, his uh, sister and brother-in-law are going out on a date. He's going to watch the kids. And I bring this up because this is the moment that bugs me. Because you have the brother saying, I'll be out there in a minute. Somebody just shot JR. That happened in 1980. Well, there is no, there is no way that it would be a surprise to someone. And maybe that's the point. Maybe they're trying to show that his brother is way behind the times. Uh, More than likely. Yes. I think you're right. I think they just tried to pick several things from the eighties. I I think they shoved an an eighties pop culture reference in there. Let's get a list of pop culture eighties references and try to pepper them in where they got plus or minus five years. And again, could work. To the fact that maybe he's watching, you know, uh, it's a rerun. This isn't 1955 anymore. People know what reruns are. It is the are. summer because Glenn says later on, you know, Miami Vice, summer reruns. <laughs> yes. That's a possibility. Was syndication a thing in the 85? For Dallas? Did, did we soap get Soap opera? I don't, I don't know. I mean, mm. but, well, plus the JR thing was such a pop culture, you know, event. You know, people talk about it for a year and, and until they're thinking oh, yeah. about that for someone – to not know that is a stretch, but yeah, I think they just threw that in there. And that's the old short of, 
Googling every song to see if it fits the 1985 time frame, or or later on when you got the florist talking about Donald and Ivana, Woody and Mia, Bert and Lonnie, yeah. all, all the couples that eventually break up. Uh, short of checking all of those for a timestamp, the, the JR thing was the only thing that jumped out at me for being off on a year. Like obviously off. Yeah, and I didn't look like, for example, when he calls out, uh, uh, I want to say it's when he's right around the, the ding-dong line when he's laying down. One of the first things Sammy comments on to try to get him out of his funk is to change the subject. And he starts talking about the, the smell of his sheets. Uh, he brings up all temper cheer. Yeah, was that was that a thing in 1985? I don't know. I have no idea. I I remember it existed. I don't know what the time frame is. So that goes into uh, Julia's uh, engagement party, or I guess is it an engagement party thing that she has? Yes. Yeah, it was an, uh, an engagement party, and she wanted to invite him a to try to get him out of his funk, and b because they're coworkers and they've never hung out before. Which and so that's the thing. They're coworkers. I mean, do they work for the same company that is gets hired for these event? Cause he, he mentioned that, you know, there are plenty of other things to do other than weddings at the, at the event house or whatever they called it. I'm wondering if they work for the same reception hall, the reception hall business in Ridgeford or whatever it's called is, is banging. I mean, this place has some wild parties and they got a full staff, a full cook cooking prime rib multiple uh acts because you got nobody wants the fish though that's true nobody wants the fish did they ever stay where richfield was it's it's uh well it's it's commutable to to new york so i would say this is probably long island or staten island or is it one of those uh new york suburbs richfield connecticut wherever or yeah wherever adam sandler's probably from really i don't know but it's definitely commutable into manhattan the engagement party is is a good point as far as it's the beginning of the real chemistry between Robbie and Julia, Adam Sandler, mm-hmm. Drew Barrymore. They do have great chemistry together. You know, it's multiple movies now. Unfortunately, they you know they have to make Sammy the butt of their jokes in order to get that chemistry moving. Oh, he throws him right under the bus. That was great, and she went along with it. But you've also got Glenn and his dipshit friend, you know, who just flat out, you know, oh yeah, that was horrible what that girl did to you. <laughs> Oh, hey, my grandma died last week, too. You want to talk about that? And of, Which, of course, he doesn't get the uh, joke at all, uh, which jumps to Avara Mishra, which, which actually would, turned out to be very great. Unfortunately, there's only four Jewish families in Ridgefield. So, you know, he's 25% done with his clientele after one night. Yeah, it gives uh, Robbie a chance to, to play the, the nice guy again, help get him out of his funk. He helps out the, the sad kid who no one wants to dance with who, you know, balls on that kid. He grabs Drew Barrymore's ass. And then it was, it was risky. Yeah. So that, that goes to uh, probably one of the main things that probably would not fly. If this movie were made today, a, the kid grabbing (laughs) Drew Barrymore's ass B Robbie going out on the dance floor and getting a girl and then making her grab his ass. Yeah. And then all the other kids. Yeah. And then all the other kids getting out, and all the other kids grabbing each other's asses. It, it's a funny moment, uh, but yeah, that's 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 one that probably it would get absolutely not fly today. written differently today. At the end of the bar mitzvah is when Julia enlists Robbie to help with her wedding, which he initially refuses, but he gets pulled in. Yeah, mainly because Glenn obviously does not want to have anything to do with the planning because it's not his thing. He doesn't enjoy it. 
he tries to throw out the excuse of, I don't want to mess, you know, I don't want to order the wrong flowers, lame excuse, but yeah. And it's and back on Glenn. It's, it's that weird almost switcheroo where they're, they're trying to make him sound distant and just not into it, but still not a bad guy. Cause he mm-hmm. does give her what she wants, which is a big wedding. He changes his mind and gives her the big wedding, but there's so many different breadcrumbs of just how much he just doesn't give a shit. Mm-hmm. And that gets expanded on when they finally get to their little double date, but we'll get to that as well. So we're doing yeah, that. That's, that's going to come up pretty quick. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we so haven't, the, uh, we haven't met John Lovitz yet. Yeah, that's, that's actually where we're at. So they, they go to get flowers and, and, uh, right before the montage, we get the great John Lovitz singing ladies night. (laughs) Aside from the fact that he's only in for that one scene, I would honestly say John Lovitz is my favorite character in this movie. Minute for minute. (laughs) He did great. I loved him. He gives a great performance. He drops several key lines, you know, mm-hmm. as far as my business has tripled since you backed out. Mm-hmm. Or should I thank Linda? Oh, oh, shots fired, man. Shots fired. Plus the, uh, right after Julia, uh, decides that that performance has, uh, inspired her to hire a DJ, basically saying, get the hell out of here. She starts talking with Robbie and, uh, they get into the concept of how he always liked to write songs. That was one of the big things uh, he wanted to do. And she, of course, keeps asking him questions about it. And he comes up and tells him that he recently wrote a song, but he half wrote it while him and Linda were together and finished it after they broke up. Uh, he also did say uh, while he was about ready to play it because she finally pressures him into, into playing it. Uh, he did apologize by saying he was listening to The Cure a lot when they broke up, which goes back to him listening to the cure while laying on the bed, mm-hmm. <laughs> him playing that song, which I mean, it, it's, it's a good funny song. And then obviously you can tell when it, where he got to when they broke up and he immediately just goes into uh, ranting on it. Uh, but you get this flashback to John Lovitz, like hiding behind the curtains going, <laughs> he's lost his mind. My business is going to be booming. And then he, he just has this really creepy smile and the curtains, cl- and he closes the curtains on him, and that's just that's probably my favorite single shot in the movie. And, and the curtains close in in a supernatural kind of way because yeah. he's still. You, you don't see his hand doing it. It's like, it's like he's doing it from down low, or obviously somebody else is doing it in the movie. But what it reminds me of is his SNL character, uh, uh, the Devil. <laughs> Uh, you know, there's a yes. people's court one that, uh, that I, that I can re- remember where uh, at, right at the end he loses in Whopper's court. And then he goes to the camera, like people at home, worship me, worship me. <laughs> yeah. The, the smile and just the big bug eyes that he had, like just seeing his uh, entire business triple because, <laughs> because Robbie has obviously lost it. <laughs> it was just great. I that's that's the one time I literally laughed out loud during this movie. So as Robbie is going through the the obvious five stages of grief, you know, your denial, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. That's only four, Steve. Uh, fa- what are the fifth one? Did I only do four? <laughs> yes. Like I said, math is hard. Denial, bargaining, anger, depression, acceptance. Yeah. No, that's five. You missed anger yeah. the first time. Well we'll cut to the videotape. Roll that beautiful bean footage. He definitely went through anger. Yes. That song was <laughs> anger. Uh, then Robbie and Julia have a wonderful little conversation over ice cream, which comes back later because 
There's the story about the Grand Canyon when they flew there. He couldn't sit by the window and look at the Grand Canyon. Yeah, he was basically explaining it was it wasn't so much a big thing. It was all the little things uh, that he never picked up on the first time, mm-hmm. and it made her think about. It. That's I want to say. I think when uh, it started out, that it started to make her think about all the little things over the past several years. Yeah, that conversation is kind of the turning point of the movie. Mm-hmm. And while they're doing it, great little song in the background, every little thing she does is magic. Yeah. And when Sting says that line, the camera it stays on Drew Barrymore. And you can just it's very intentional. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, uh, I will say, you know, I think they did a pretty good job of kind of splitting this movie to be focused almost 50% on both of them instead of, obviously, it's an Adam Sandler movie. Obviously, mm-hmm. Adam Sandler plays the main character, but we get a lot, instead of just following him around and having little tidbits, we get a lot of Drew Barrymore as a, yeah, we get a lot of Drew Barrymore's character, Julia, as a primary character. And it's, it's almost 50-50, I would say, as I was watching that. There's a reason for that, because originally it wasn't, and they brought in a ghostwriter to do some script cleanup. Uh, to give it a more feminine feel, Carrie Fisher. Ah. So Carrie Fisher was brought in to to really build up Julia's storyline and give her all those little moments. I did not know that. That is amazing. Long live the princess. Yeah, absolutely. A drink for that, Letty. That is awesome. And then that goes into a wonderful montage with Hall and Oates. Oh, yes. You're going to do a montage in the 80s. You can't go wrong with Hall and Oates. You got to have a montage. And I think of the whenever I hear that Hall and Oates song, uh, which I can't think of the name of it at the time. What I want, you got. Uh, but I, I, I picture I picture George eating the wedding cake at the end of it. <laughs> that that purposely awkward you know scene. He's got dirty teeth and just he's oh, it's, oh yes, it's, it's brutal. Even Rocky had a montage. That whole section of the movie ends with the church kiss. Yeah, Church when he uh, educational kiss. Yeah, she leaves her jacket in uh, the limo, like clockwork. The next day, he comes back, brings the jacket off. Uh, to which, the, you know, previously, right before he shows up, Julia and her sister are having this intense conversation or kind of a d- subtle debate about church tongue, about how much tongue is too much or not enough for a wedding kiss. So enter Robbie Hart to uh, be the stand-in at Holly's request. Holly decides, well, why don't you just show me on Robbie? And, and that's the beginnings of Holly pulling all the strings yes. now. From here on out, it's, it's Holly. She, see, she sees the whole card. thing. Yep. yep. This was her first And, and that, from that kiss on, it, it changes the rest of the movie because now there's an idea in Robbie's head. There's an idea in Julia's head. And Holly... Knows it's not an idea for her. Uh, she sets up, uh, so she starts talking to her sister uh, about it later. You know, trying to play up Robbie. Robbie's cute, huh? I really like him. You should set me up with him. Basically, you know, kind of testing her to see what she says, yep. what she does, or how she reacts to that. Uh, and you can tell that she's she's not mm-hmm. immediately like, oh hell yeah, you should do that. It's more of a you want to date Robbie, which leads into the famous double date. Ah. Uh, into the at, into the, at 80s the most club. 80s of 80s clubs. <laughs> the only way it could have gotten more 80s is if the Terminator would have burst in trying to hunt down Sarah Connor. You know, all ne- all neon lights everywhere. It's very smoky. 
the hair, man. Oh my God. Holly and another um, Madonna get up. Oh, Holly and the hair. <sighs> Have I mentioned I like Christine Taylor? But the, the double date is where uh, Julia drinks too much and they have to leave and go to the, uh, go to the restroom. And Robbie has an opportunity to talk to Glenn one-on-one, which is kind of their first real one-on-one conversation. It's sit, they and sit there for a while, now, too, because um, right after they awkward. leave, they just sit there because they obviously have nothing in common. They have nothing to talk about. Um, I did like the Julia climbing over the table to get to the bathroom (laughs) because that's how it's kind of illustrates how drunk she is. But yeah, it it, just for a second. And and that's when Robbie realizes that Glenn is staring at the bent over waitress across the room. So he, so he decides to throw out that little test. Yeah. It's like, well, once the wedding happens, it's, it's fun's over, right? Like, Hey, I work in the city. Yeah. But it also has the, the callback line of the whole uh, grade a, Grade A prime choice meat. That's what, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. And if it weren't for that, then the end of the movie might have been completely different. If Glenn were any more, if Glenn were original in his depictions of Winneman, then we might have had a completely different ending. So at the end of that night, Holly and Robbie have a conversation. You know, he's either going to get laid or he's going to be focusing on Julia, and he's focusing on Julia. Yeah. But then Holly throws the line out there that she's only marrying him for money and security, mm-hmm. which gives Adam Sandler the opportunity to meet up with Kevin Nealon, the, the bank manager. <laughs> so, yeah, Robbie sets out to try and get a job in the city. I don't have any experience. I have a little money. <laughs> I like money. I have a little money. I want to get more money. You're the man to do that <laughs> or something along those lines. That was, it was a good little, it was a good yeah, little pitch. It, it was. Um, it's unfortunate that it didn't work, but it was, there's a lot of money in those walls and I'd like to get my hands on it. <laughs> but then that leads then to a lot of drunk, a lot of drunken mess. Yeah. It, it also pushes him. I think a little, uh, in the whole idea that that's why she's marrying him kind of irks him a little. Uh, besides the fact that it makes him think, well, maybe this is what I have to do to get somebody like her. It also irks him that I thought she was different. I didn't think she, this is what she was after kind of thing because he, he gets a little kind of not, I guess a little animosity would be the right word. The next time they talk. Well, I I don't think that Julia reacts properly in my opinion, because Holly tells Julia that she told Robbie Mm -hmm. why she was marrying Glenn. Well, she sort of, she sort of did it because she said, because you love him. And then let it sit for a second. And because of the security. And that's when Julia was like, wait, no. Julia goes to Robbie to give him the sheet music that she had made for him. Mm -hmm. And she gets so offended when Robbie repeats back to her that she's getting married for money. And Julia just seems so offended that he would say that. But she she knew that's what he thought. Yeah. Why? And then she calls him an asshole and throws the papers everywhere. It's like, eh, I think that was a bit of an overreaction because she already knew now what she, he was thinking. Yeah. Now, if those two scenes had happened in reverse, complete, I would say justified because, uh, because yes, I agree. she wouldn't have been told yet. She wouldn't have known that that's the idea that Robbie got planted in his head. But yeah, that's a fair point. I wonder if they were intended to be, to be different and it was just through editing it got placed that way. I don't know. Can you call Adam and find out? Yeah, he doesn't answer my calls anymore. Bastard. Those damn Hollywood elites, I swear. I keep asking for little Nicky too, and he just he just won't do it. <laughs> so so next up on Robbie's journey is the drunken night out at the bar with Sammy, and they're 
in old blue, I think it is. Yeah. We're back in Michael Jackson land where he, where Sammy is teaching the old man, old boy or old blue to moonwalk, which is also great. I love that. That is blue from old school, isn't it? I think so. I did not I think uh, it look is. that up, but that was my I didn't first look that thought. up, but I think it is. Yeah, where they're, they're, they run into Glenn and his bachelor party outside, and, and old Blue goes to, goes to punch, punch Glenn, and it's like, I used to be I much stronger. stronger. <laughs> and then Glenn completely sucker punches him, too. That's the sad part. But in the bar is a key conversation with Sammy and Robbie where – Robbie says he's envious that Sammy can, you know, just be the gigolo and be with all kinds of women. But Robbie or Sammy says, yeah, I envy the Fonz. I envy those guys. But, you know, what happened to all those guys? They got canceled and they're no more. So it shows that Sammy is actually jealous of Robbie and his desire for an actual real relationship. Mm -hmm. So the drunken night out at the bar then leads into the return of Linda. Yeah, to where he passes out on the lawn. And Linda basically takes advantage of him. And now it's kind of implied, but not proven of what happened after that. For all we all we know is she drug him into the bed. Yeah. I, I, I'm just going to go with that's what happened. You know, he was pretty much out of commission. You know, and all she did was put on his Van Halen t-shirt. Better take that off before you jinx the band and they break up. That's such a great line. <laughs> uh, and then Linda confronts Julia, who goes to see Robbie. To apologize. Which, of course, Linda opens the door in nothing but the t-shirt. Yeah, Linda throws down the, the jealousy lines. Mm. Calls her by the wrong name. Oh, yeah. Would you tell her? I mean, yeah, yeah, sure thing, Jennifer. So the next day is little Rosie's 50th anniversary, which we haven't mentioned her, but Ra- Robbie has been training her to, to sing a little show tune from the music man. But she does great. You know, it's nice. She did a really good job. Yeah. Not, not bad for working for meatballs. I did a, like her rapper's delight better. She nails oh, it. Oh, yes. She nailed that. I did look it up, and, and uh, Rosie died in 2015 at age 101. So she lived a good life, good long life. Oh, hell yeah. That's, that's great. Uh, but here, kicks, everything kicks into gear, and you've got Julia uh, runs off with Glenn to Vegas to get married. Holly runs into uh, Robbie, who has a, a newfound uh, mission. You know, little Rosie tells him to go get her. Yeah. And then after seeing the, uh, the old lady it basically inspires him to which Sammy immediately mm-hmm. kick, picks up on. It just so happens they cross paths as they're walking out, which if that wouldn't have happened again, one pivotal scene, I'm pretty sure uh, Holly was waiting in there just to make it look like she happened to run into him. But she's been spying on him the whole time. You know, back to the whole master puppets thing. Well, I'm sure she was probably working it. She, it's, it's an event at the ever rocking Bridgeport Recreation Hall. <laughs> so then they head to the the wonderful airports of the '80s, where you can just walk up and buy a ticket to anything anywhere. Oh my God, paper ticket, no less. I'll go ahead and mention it, but I thought it was a bit forced. But the flock of seagulls guy was kind of dumb to me. Yeah, that was, again, that goes back to the let's think of a bunch of 80s pop culture references. Having the hair is one thing, but yes. mentioning it. Yeah, that exactly. It's exactly what no, I was going to say. I bet you do. Yeah, that was a little too much. But then that, that gets straight into Act 3. This is the beginning of the big romantic gesture of every romantic comedy uh, where they're on the plane, but they don't know they're on the plane. One's in first class, one's in coach. Yeah, Julia is sitting in the aisle to Glenn. Uh, being on the window seat, which he's flown to Vegas before, obviously. She's never been. So she tries to test out Robbie's theory about switching seats. 
uh, that they had talked about before, you know, the little things that keep him off. And uh, obviously Glenn doesn't like sitting in the aisle seat because he's got, you know, monster arms apparently that will get slammed by the drink cart every time, which as we find Does out, hurt. those things slam. Ev- yes. But those things obviously slam everybody uh, as drew slash Julia found out. I wonder how many takes they had to do and slamming into her I was thinking elbow. the same thing because her reaction is, is pretty spot on in pain. <laughs> and I wouldn't put it past her to, for her to literally say, hit me for real kind of thing. And then in contrast to their, uh, to Julia's uh, elbow banging uh, experience back in coach, you have uh, Robbie up in first class for the first time in his life, not knowing what to do with the hot towels, not understanding that the drinks are included, which I mean, I can understand his reaction. Absolutely. I only knew what to do with the hot towels because of this movie. <laughs> you know what? I probably, yeah. Cause I had never been into first class before seeing this movie. So I'm pretty sure that's where it came from too. And the fact that he's like, is that Billy Idol? And we're the steward at that, at that time frame, not flight attendant yet, but the steward was like, Oh yeah, it's just, that's just normal day. Uh, and then, and then of course he decides to tell a story to the one, the single flight attendant to which everybody starts overhearing. And then at the next scene, every single person in first class is just enamored, including Billy Idol, who is his champion at this point. Yeah. He he has a, a a little mini monologue, kind of like Alice Cooper in Wayne's world where he just start. He sounds Mm -hmm. very intellectual. All Glenn wants is possessions. Even women have possessions to him, which, I mean, I imagine that's how Billy Idol talks on a daily basis. Don't you ruin that for me. I would hope so. So Robbie gets the chance to, to complete his big romantic gesture. And he, he sings the song that he wrote on the way to the airport through the airplane loudspeaker to Julia. It is kind of weird that everyone's staring at Julia before he even emerges. There's a quick, quick cut of all these passengers standing and looking how at her. How would they know it's, how would they have any idea it's for her? I made a note of that too. Yeah. Unless they're, unless we don't see them all looking around and she's the only one smiling, but still, yeah, it doesn't fit. It is a good ending to their, to their story though, as far as the, uh, it's a romantic gesture done. Well, uh, the song is catchy and yeah. the way it's done, you know, he just kind of comes through first class and, and, oh, well, we didn't mention how they even know that they're there, which is, which is goes back to the grade a prime choice meet. Yeah. That's your little Chekhov's gun in quote form. Mm-hmm. Uh, to which, you know, he elicits the steward and Billy Idol to run interference with Glenn. Yeah. And if there's one thing I've learned is you don't insult Billy Idol to his face because his fans are everywhere and they will hurt you. <laughs> you don't talk about Billy Idol like that. A very, very conveniently well-placed uh, Billy Idol fan. <laughs> yeah. Who was a professional wrestler in a cameo. I don't know his name. <laughs> and then after professions of love... Julie and Robbie get married and then cut to the new wedding singer, Steve Buscemi, Steve Buscemi. the greatest <laughs> guitarist in the world. Self-taught doing a great cover of true. Uh, I, I like that one. Yeah. Ha, 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 ha. There were a lot of, there's a lot of good music in this movie. And the music is why it's my favorite Sandler movie between the songs actually sung by the actors, Steve Buscemi, George, and obviously Adam Sandler. Uh, even Rosie, even Linda. Yeah. Rosie, even Linda tried, uh, tried her hand at a, uh, half witted wake me up before you go, go. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I forgot about that one. 
Yeah, I mean, Happy Gilmore, I laugh more at. I mean, the, the jokes are funnier and it's, it's it's more hysterical. But this movie has that soundtrack has, attached to it. Has it that's what puts it over for me. Uh, yeah, and then the right the regular songs that, that are mixed into it: Thompson Twins, Sting, Hollow Notes, Blue Monday, David Bowie. Yeah, the bug, and, then, and then it ends on a great Buggles song. Well, it's actually not the Buggles. I was thinking, I was thinking that it's a Buggles song, but it, yeah, it sounded yeah, like a cover. It's uh, it's the but president's it's not one of the covers. That's the president's. I have that one. And I didn't think that was it. Yeah, I think it was made for this movie. Ah, rock on! If you could see this movie from a different point of view, what would so, you make that? <laughs> the only thing, the only thing I could really come up with was. Uh, telling it from, say, Steve Buscemi's point of view. <laughs> That'd be a short movie. <laughs> well, uh, you, see, you don't see him in much of the movie, but for all you know, he's in the background on a lot of it. But he's basically, instead of being at the top of his life, you know, like Robbie is, to go down and then come back up, Steve's starting at the bottom. He is the drunk brother-in-law who is constantly ignored by his parents, even though in his mind, He's as good, if not better, than his brother. He's obviously an aspiring singer and or guitarist, self-taught, that uh, maybe he's sitting there in the sidelines watching Robbie bounce back from this evil thing that happened to him and thinking, well, if he, he can do it, I can do it. And at the, at the very end, he becomes the wedding singer. So the movie's really about him becoming a wedding singer and that instead of Robbie Hart already being a wedding singer. He has the true hero's journey. <laughs> I would like to see this strictly from Holly's point of view. Also, where, yes. Where all, she's, you know, we're not getting all those side scenes with, with Robbie or Julia off doing their own thing. We're just seeing it from, you know, like you said, she was probably waiting in the wings watching them. Yeah. And her bedroom. seeing things from a distance. Yeah. In her bedroom on the <laughs> she wall. She cameras everywhere. <laughs> she, yeah, she's sitting there in a surveillance station. She's got a pin board with pictures of Robbie and Julie and everybody, and she's got strings. Don't There's red string everywhere. everywhere. You've seen the meme of Charlie from uh, It's Always yeah. Sunny. <laughs> Where's Pepe? <laughs> no one's seen Pepe. <laughs> that I'd watch that. Now is the time on our show where we rank the movie based on our fan review while also adding in the IMDb rating. This is a 10-point scale, and the average will be put into our mega list. Mega list. So, Aaron, what's your ranking of The Wedding Singer? So, uh, like I had said before, this is definitely one of my favorite Adam Sandler movies. I wouldn't put it to the top of the list. Me, from a personal aspect, still put something like Happy Gilmore above it. But it's definitely in the top two, top three. I'd, I'd actually, uh, from my recollection, I'd say it's at least my second favorite Adam Sandler list. It's definitely funny, although a lot of it is just straight up, you know, 80s reference jokes. So it's not something that's very repeat, like repeat watchable because, you know, the joke's kind of over as soon as you hear it. That being said, if it's something that you don't watch, re- it's definitely rewatchable, just not too often. So I wouldn't put it on like a, I need to watch this every year kind of thing, like uh, I may or may not do with all the Star Wars movies. I ended up giving this uh, a 6.8. I think that's reasonable. I ranked it a little higher. I do really love this movie. It is something that I would definitely throw on randomly. And again, I keep going back to the music. I just adore the the 80s hits that they selected for this. Uh, They all work well in the movie. Uh, They complement the story. They complement the comedy. Adam Sandler, 
you know, displaying a full range of emotions when he needs to in a comedic way. It just really kind of hits all the, all the good points. It's not a perfect movie by far. I mean, that, that JR thing still kind of irks me. And the flock of seagulls. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the flock of seagulls thing. Some of the '80s jokes are a bit forced. Uh, you know, they got the Rubik's cube in one scene and other, other places. Uh, there's a CD player for seven hundred dollars. Uh, yeah, we get it. It's the '80s. <laughs> yes, we we remember the '80s. And, and you're right that there's some people today, uh, the younger generation, won't get some of those jokes. But they just the '80s can be kind of a forgotten generation for us Gen Xers, which we are fine with. Yeah. Uh, but so my ranking is a 7.25. That's good. Now, uh, after your description of your alternate version of it, if, if I were to see the, the wedding singer from Holly's point of view, I would have probably rated that a nine just for Christine. But, it, it, but it needs to be an R rating. Okay. Then mine goes to 11. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what does IMDb say for this one? Uh, let's see. Uh, IMDb for this movie has it as 6.8. Look at that. Oh. I am equal to a computer. All right. So by our scores combined, let's put to that a 6.95. 6.95, which puts it just under Independence Day, which was a 7, and uh, just above Coneheads, which was a 6.6. Yeah, I can agree with that. Yeah. I'm okay with that. So, Steve, uh, you being the father of two wonderful children, would you recommend this movie today for new audiences, kids their age? I would, uh, and I would love to see their reactions to, say, the, the period piece of the 80s. And, and I hope there's more period pieces of the 80s that show this. What about you? you gonna, you're you going to recommend this? I would agree. I would definitely say it's worth the watch if you've never seen it, even if you hadn't grown up in the 80s. Obviously, I'd, I'm not going to expect someone to get all the references if they're a little young for that. But I still think even without the references, which as we've obviously covered can be forced at times that it's still a funny movie with, with some great non eighties jokes in there as well. So are you watching anything, listening to anything, playing anything that you want to recommend to our listeners out there these days? So uh, for right now, if you uh, basically dating this, uh, I'm a big star Wars fan and we are about two weeks into the new Disney Star Wars show, The Bad Batch. For any good Star Wars fans, I would definitely recommend it. It is a lot better of a watch if you have watched any of the, the uh, previous shows, uh, specifically specifically the, orig- the uh, prequel, tri- uh, prequel trilogy and The Clone Wars. But that's, that's the big one that, that we're waiting on for now. We basically just wrapped up the first two Marvel MCU TV shows. Uh, recently. So Disney's doing a pretty good job right now of trying to get something out at least once every week for quite a while. So that's going to be nice. Yeah. I enjoyed WandaVision and the Falcon soldier. Oh yeah. Those were, those are, those were definitely excellent. Uh, what about you? My recommendation, uh, for this week is going to be truth seekers, which is available on prime. And it's, it's a show with Nick Frost and Simon Pegg that they developed. And it was, it's a, it's a eight, eight part series. Unfortunately, did not get renewed for second season, but that's okay. The first season was, was really good. Nick Frost plays a cable installer in England who is also a ghost hunter and shenanigans ensue. So it's, it's really good. I recommend it. Uh, we burned through all eight episodes pretty quick. So give that, a, give that a watch if you have a chance. All right. So next up is our spin. Spin that wheel. 
So I have set the max to 351 before you ask. All right, here we go. Three, two, one. 340. 340. Oh, we're in. We're still in the W's. <laughs> Waterworld. Wet, hot American summer. Yes. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Man, I have not seen that in so long. That it's going to be great. I was personally hoping for a a drama, something a little deeper, uh, or maybe even a known bad movie. But this works too. <laughs> this yes. is great. Uh, I'll allow it. <laughs> oh my god. That's all for this episode of Cinema Decon. Thanks for listening, and we hope you stay with us through this little experiment. We have a bit of a learning curve, and we hope to improve with each movie. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcast or whatever it's called this week. Check out our website in the show notes to see the full list of movies we'll be covering and our rankings thus far. You can also visit us on our Patreon, and we'll try to post some random outtakes before the final cut. We'll see you next time on On Cinema Decon. Is there a chalkboard in my garage? Wibbly, <laughs> wibbly wobbly timey wimey.